Let's pray. Dear Father, God, we uh, come to you, Lord, knowing that you are great and that you are worthy to be praised and that you are so kind and so gracious in spite of your justice and your holiness and perfection to make a way for us to come to you, Lord, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the one who's sent and slain to take away our sin, God. Thank you so much for your Son, Father. Pray that everything we do would be glorifying to you. I pray that this sermon would be glorifying to you, that this time of singing and worship would be glorifying to you, that everything that we do together in worship will be glorifying to you, Lord, and that Jesus Christ would be lifted high this evening, God. Father, I, I pray at this time for the world. I pray for the state of the world the way it is right now. I know that it's all in your hand, and we thank you that it is. We pray that you would maintain peace and, and places where there is war. I pray that you would bring peace and that the instability and chaos that we see in the world right now would would definitely come to a peaceful end, Lord. And we know, thankfully, that in, in this world there will be trials, there will be wars, there will be rumors of wars, there will be all matter of difficulty, Lord. But we thank you that there is a day coming when all the wars and the striving and everything else will cease from happening. And that we can look forward to that day, that resurrection day, that day in the new Jerusalem, Lord, when you will set all things right. God, I pray for this country's government. I pray for this state's government, for this local government. I pray that you would be honored and glorified, even in the government, that they would have laws and desires that are in line with your word and not contrary to your will, Lord, that they would strive to uphold laws and principles that would, in fact, uphold righteousness and, and truth in the world, in education, in the judicial system, in every aspect of government, Lord. I pray that your hand would be, greater, would be seen in a greater way there. Father, we long for you to come, and we know that you've given us a commission, you've given us a mission to do, and I pray that you'd give us strength as we each serve to and strive to fulfill that mission. And I also pray for uh, the RBNet missionaries. Pray for all the missionaries we support. I pray for uh, Pastor Tiago and Marta and, and the Oliveras as they are going to be with us soon. I pray that you'd be with them as they travel and thank you for bringing them back here again for a visit. And Lord, I pray for APC and for the work there in Africa, the desire to reach out to Africa and Train up men to serve you and to preach your word faithfully. God, I pray for all the rest of the missionaries in the world that are faithful to your word, that are trying to plant churches and establish home churches in places where your word has fallen on hard times or where your word has never been. I pray that you would uh, allow your kingdom to come, Lord, through that work. God, I pray as we each do desire to spread the gospel, we do desire to see your kingdom come. I will just pause for a second as each of us lifts up our prayers to you.
on behalf of people that we love and people that we want to see saved. Dear God, thank you that you do hear our prayers. Thank you that you have the power by your spirit and through your word to reach even the most stubborn hearts. God, I pray that you would bring revival in our church, in our region, many places around the world. For your glory, Lord, that your son's name would be lifted high, that every knee will bow to him. God, I pray this evening that as I preach, uh, that you would open our eyes, that you would open my eyes and everyone else's eyes to better behold Christ, to see the great sacrifice that he has made for our sin, to see the atonement that he has made and the work that he has done to make salvation possible, that we would just be filled with a greater measure of your love and a greater awareness of you and your love, and that that would cause us to love you more and just love others more. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text is 1 John 2, verse 1 to 2. So please turn there. Um, we will, uh, yeah, let's begin by reading 1 John 2, verse 1 to 2, and then we'll get into the sermon. This is the word of the Lord. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. This is the reading of the word. So you will remember from the past couple of sermons that we've been doing in 1 John that 1 John deals with false teachers who are coming in to disrupt the faith and the joy of the people, the saints in Asia Minor and the new churches there. And they were trying to disrupt them with teachings that were deceptive and they were a mixture of truth and error, half-truth, you could say. And of course, half-truth is no truth. When someone comes to you with a half-truth to deceive you. So they were, they were trying to manipulate and deceive the people there in those churches. And Seth talked a little bit about this, but I want to lead in with a little bit more talk about these errors and these deceptions that were taking place. So one such deception um, is the appeal to a sincere young Christian with the prospect of perfection in this life. That would be an example of a, of a very sinister One of the most sinister ways that someone who's a false teacher or a manipulator would try to attack a young, sincere Christian. Why? Well, because if the person had an accurate view of themselves, right, they'd actually uh, come to some kind of a profession of faith or some real acknowledgement of the gospel. If they had this and they saw that they truly were a sinner and they truly did come to appreciate and love the sinless glory and perfection of their Savior Jesus then they would want nothing more in their life as a young Christian to want to be perfect, right? They would want nothing more than to want to be like their Lord, to be like their Savior. That is their heartfelt desire. 
So a baby Christian is desperate for relief. They have all these accusations, all these temptations, and all these different affronts from the wicked one and from others. A lot of frustration with their own sinful nature. And it's their greatest desire to be free from all of this, to be truly perfect, to be perfected. But yet they're always keenly aware that they are not perfect, right? They're keenly aware of this. And so when a teacher comes or somebody comes and preaches this message of perfectionism and says, hey, you can, if you do this or that, or if you listen to me, you can be perfect in this life. Or if someone says, I am a preacher and I am perfect in this life, you could see how that'd be very appealing to somebody, a very appealing message to a young Christian to want to, have, to, want to reach this perfection early, to want to be perfect in this life. So the thing with a young Christian too is they tend to be to show deference, right? They they tend to um, submit to other people who speak with a lot of authority or people who've been in the faith for a longer amount of time. So when someone comes up to an immature Christian teaching perfectionism, the young Christian would say, "Well, who am I? I'm just a baby Christian. Who am I to question this person telling me that I can be perfect? Maybe they truly are perfect, right? They 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 show a deference and a humility to that person because they've been a Christian." or a so-called Christian, for longer. And so this is a very deceptive and a very strong lie. And so John, who is a mature and godly apostle, which, by the way, if anyone was perfect, if anyone truly thought they could be perfect, or at least was perfect, you'd think it'd be John. right? We would think that. We'd expect that. John guards very strongly, very forcefully against this doctrine. In verse 8, he says, If we including himself, including him and any other teacher, if we, in verse 8, say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then in verse 10, he says, if we say that we have not sinned, then we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So in other words, we're actually deceived, we're a liar ourselves if we say we don't have sin, but we also make out our Savior, our God, to be a liar if we say that we have no sin. John is very clear. He could not be more clear in his outright rejection of perfectionism. This doctrine is very uh, tempting to people. It's very persuasive, but he could not be clearer that he does not believe in this. You can add to this some words from elsewhere in Scripture to just hammer home the point. Well, for example, in the Lord's Prayer, why do you think when, we go to, when the disciples go to Jesus and ask Jesus how they should pray, if Jesus thought some of them would be perfect, then certainly he would not have given the Lord's Prayer. Because the Lord's Prayer is for every Christian. And it says in there, forgive us. Forgive us our debts, right? Of course, that's not a message of perfectionism. For the rest of your Christian life, when you're praying the Lord's Prayer, you will be praying, forgive us our debts. And then Paul says in Philippians 3.12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Right? He's an apostle. If anyone could have attained or would have been perfected, certainly it would have been him. But Paul says, not that I have already attained or that I am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. He knows he's not perfect, but he knows that the perfect one has laid hold of him, and so he presses on. And so this is one ditch. This is one uh, deceptive ditch that someone could fall into, that a false teacher could lead someone into, and that's the ditch of perfectionism. So this produces, as Seth mentioned in his sermon, Perfectionism either produces a sense of pride, a self-obsession, or a delusion in a person, or on the other side, it produces despair and hopelessness. So either you're the guy who is deluded and confused and thinks they're actually perfect, 
so then they're self-obsessed and proud. Or you're a despairing and hopeless person because you see all these other so-called perfect people, but since you have an accurate assessment, you know you're not, and then you don't have any hope. You, don't, you feel like you're falling off. You're not one of the in-crowd of Christians. So perfectionism is a lie, and it should be rejected outright. But there's another ditch and a deception to avoid, and that is the ditch of resignation or complacency in the face of sin. That's on the other side. This ditch says, I know I'm not perfect. So it doesn't fall into perfectionism. It says, I know I'm not perfect, and therefore, why bother? Why bother? Why would I resist sin and fight it? God says He forgives sin, so why don't I just keep on sinning? God says He's a kind and gracious God. He'll forgive me, and and He's like that, so why can't I just keep on sinning so that grace may abound? That's this other error. This error is, in my opinion, much more prevalent than perfectionism in a church like ours. That's important for us to realize. A church like ours teaches the gospel of grace. teaches that we are all sinners. It does not teach perfectionism. So this is more appealing to us and likely is something that some of you fall into. You fall into this category of thinking so much of the grace of God, so much of the fact that He'll forgive your sin, that you actually think, well, it's not a big deal if I do this sin again. It's not a big deal if I stumble in this way again. It's not a big deal if I keep lingering in this bad habit for a little while because Jesus is so gracious and so loving. This error is a form of cheap and ineffective grace, right? It's a, it's a, it's a form of, of, a, of an error that, that says that Jesus' death doesn't transform people, that the grace of God doesn't have power, that it pretends that it's okay for the church that's supposed to be perfected and made holy This error actually pretends that it's okay for that church to be no different than the world, right? That they can just go on being worldly. That they can go go on being like everyone else. So thankfully, John again directly combats this lie because he knows this is just as tempting. So many people can fall off of this side. And he says, my little children, in our text this evening, the last one was from the previous, but this one is from this evening's text. In verse uh, 1, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin, period. So that you may not sin, period. Right? He's saying he wants them to stop sinning and he wants them to have a heart and a sincere, earnest desire to stop sinning. And elsewhere in the Bible, it also says that we are to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. It says, stop sinning. Quit sinning so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Right? This is a very clear biblical teaching. You need to have a desire to stop sinning, period. And these things are written to us so that we may stop sinning, period. No qualifications added. Earlier on, John also, also wrote, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, this is what Seth talked about, talking about light and liars. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and we walk in darkness, then we lie and we do not practice the truth. We lie and we do not practice the truth. And in John 3, verse 3, it says that anyone who has the hope of Jesus Christ in themselves purifies themselves as He is pure. Anyone who has truly seen Jesus Christ will purify themselves as He is pure. So they don't fall into either perfectionism, because yeah, they still acknowledge that they're a sinner, but they're also not going to resign to a life of sinfulness. They're going to be constantly looking at the perfect one, constantly aiming to be perfect, constantly meditating on, striving to obey the Word of God in such a way that they actually do start to stop sinning in certain ways. There's an important aspect there. 
You don't always need to stay an addict. You don't always need to stay distracted and lazy. You don't always need to stay in whatever thing you begin the race with. You can make progress in the Christian life. John has written these things to us so that we may not sin. And so we see here that obedience isn't optional. It always increases in the children of God. True Christians always do have a desire to be perfect, even though they won't ever be perfect on this side of heaven. Okay? They always have that desire, even though they won't be this side of heaven. So we don't believe in perfectionism, but we must also reject cheap grace. We must also reject easy believism and this uh, lack of an effort to become holy, to stop sinning. Let me just get a drink. So now I want to prove something else to you. So these people that we've been dealing with, mostly religious people, right, so far, people who believe in these types of things, they fall into these two ditches. But I want to prove to you also that, um, that other than born-again Christians, there is no one, whether religious people or non-religious people, all people on earth, there's no one who is not trapped in some form of one of these spiritual deceptions. Okay, that's, a, that's something we're going to have to take a second to prove, but I want, you to sh- I want you to see this, and I want to prove this to you. So, first of all, we see that all people have a moral compass, right, and a conscience, an inner gauge that God has given to them and which tells them that what they are doing is right or what they are doing is wrong. You could refer to the conscience as an inner law, if you will. It's not the clear-cut way that the law define- is defined in, for instance, the Ten Commandments, There's a lot more gray area in the sense of how it communicates to people. But all people, even if they've never read the Bible, even if they've never heard the Ten Commandments, they have this inner law. And that's that's made clear in Romans 2, verse 14 to 15, where it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts either accusing or else excusing them. It's a long verse, but the key is they have this conscience, they have this tendency to act in certain ways, and then their conscience either is accusing them or excusing them. So everyone, that's all people, religious and non-religious, when they're in the moral court, they will either be excused or they will be accused by their conscience in their life for their actions. So this means all people have a problem, right? Because if all people are constantly being accused and excused, that means that some of the time all people are being accused. That means some of the time all people are finding that they do in fact have a guilt aspect in their life. They do in fact have a sense that something is wrong with them, that they do in fact not always obey this even this basic inner moral guide that they have. And the thing is, all people apart from Christ, no matter if they're religious or non-religious, try to fix the moral predicament in an ineffective way. So they all try to fix this problem, but they all try to fix it in an ineffective way. One person might seek relief from this conscience pain, By having, just similar to what the perfectionist did, this person might have a delusional and an inaccurate assessment of themselves. 
So they'll say, I'm a good person, right? They, they would completely ignore the fact that they just cussed at someone while driving or that they cheated on their taxes or whatever it is that the smaller sins that they consider to be okay. They'll ignore those, but they'll overall say, I'm a good person. They'll say, everyone who knows me likes me. Um, they'll say, I haven't ever been to prison. I have a good job. Things like that, right? They'll, 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 they'll be like a perfectionist in that sense, that they'll have a delusional and inaccurate assessment of themselves. And then what this person will really be saying is, I'm okay. They'll fundamentally be saying, I'm okay. When it comes to the law room of God, I'll pass the test before him. Then there's another person, um, another kind of branch of, of people who they are not quite as delusional. Even if they're not Christian, even if they're not religious, they are not quite as delusional. They would be more similar to the perfectionist who doesn't feel that they've attained perfection, right? So these people fall into despair and depression. Such a person will wallow in a state of self-loathing oftentimes. They will realize they don't measure up. They'll realize guilt. They'll even be disgusted with themselves. They'll fall into a state of depression, believing that they are a deadbeat or a failure or a loser because they don't even measure up to their own basic standard, constantly failing, constantly falling short of what, they're, what is required of them, knowing they're not perfect, and they fall into this state of despair. And still another unbelieving person's response to the voice of the conscience is similar to the cheap grace or the easy believing person. Right? They might say, why bother? And they might say, sin isn't a big deal. Right? This is a very common sentiment in our world today. Very, very common way to deal with this inner distress, this inner anxiety about our uh, lack of goodness, right? This is a very common one where people say everyone is allowed to do whatever makes them happy. Everyone is allowed to do whatever they think is right. That's how they do it. That's, they have this inner conscience. They have this guilty aspect in their life. But in order to escape from that, they just reject the whole thing. They just reject the whole law. They try to cast off the burden or the yoke of the law entirely. These kind of people will act like the God-given voice that condemns their greed or that condemns their lust, their lack of generosity, generosity, their harshness, their lack of self-control, their discontentment, their hatred. This person will act like that voice that says those things are wrong is just a figment of their imagination. They'll try to move on from it. They'll try to numb it with drugs or anything they can. They'll try to do whatever they can to flee away from it, and they'll, and they'll indulge themselves They'll live a life that is such that, they, that you could just as much imagine that this person doesn't even believe that that voice is there, and they try to dismiss it. So now we want to notice that whether it's for a professing religious person like we talked about at the beginning, or whether it's for a, uh, so for like a twisted um, perfectionist or a legalist or uh, in that view that leads to pride or despair, or whether it's for a professing religious person who is twisted by cheap grace, or whether it's for a lost person who's twisted by self-confidence and pride, or for a lost person who lives loosely and pretends like there is no law, for all of these people, their, their error, right, their mistake is equally deadly. And their solution, the escape clause, the way that they try to get away from it, is equally ineffective. So the Bible offers all people who stay on their own path who try to solve this moral predicament and this moral problem on their own, nothing but wrath, nothing but condemnation, nothing but judgment, nothing but hell. 
That's what the Bible offers to anyone and everyone who tries to solve this moral problem, this moral problem of their shortcoming before the holy God in a way that is according to their own human wisdom, their own human works, whatever their own approach is, like the ones we've just discussed. The Bible doesn't offer anything for them. No grace. Just wrath, condemnation, and judgment. But thankfully, regardless of what ditch you might fall into, or what we might fall into at times, or what we have previously been in as unbelievers, or as professing religious people, the solution to the problem is revealed by God in His Word, and it is the same solution for everybody. It's the same solution for everybody. Just like all these people fall into similar problems, it's the same solution for everybody. And in that regard, let's look at verse 2. Or let's read 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So the solution to this problem, this moral problem before God, is that we need to find a helper. We need an advocate. We need to look outside of ourselves, outside of our own wisdom, and find help. So the problem is all these people in their blindness and their fallen pride, they look to themselves. They look to their own solution. They don't look outside of themselves for their wisdom, for their help in time of need, for their help from, from saving them from their moral corruption and from their sin before a holy God. It's a huge mistake to know that you need help if anyone's even a little bit honest, they should be able to admit. To know that you need help, but to not go to the helper. That's a huge mistake. And the reason I say helper is for a specific reason. Because when it says there in that verse, it says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. That word literally means helper. And he's a helper for us. He's our advocate before the Father. And even more so than just looking at it as an advocate or a helper, the reason that Jesus Christ can be our advocate before the Father, can be our helper, is because of the bloody sacrifice of propitiation. Because when Jesus laid down His life on the cross, He paid the price. He paid the sacrifice for all of our moral shortcoming before God. And this fact that the answer is the same for everybody. The answer is the same for everybody. All of these people with all of their various problems, all of their problems would be solved if they would look at the bloody sacrifice. If they would look at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who served as the propitiation on the cross. All of their problems morally before God find a beautiful resolution. I'll show you what I mean by that. When someone is given eyes to see by the Holy Spirit and they're able to see the meaning of the bloody sacrifice of Jesus, then the proud perfectionist, right? The proud perfectionist realizes that his righteousness falls way short of his holy and obedient Savior. The despairing person, the despairing perfectionist finds wholeness there. For the first time, they find, wow, there's actually a way for wholeness and perfection to be given to me from Jesus. The lawless person or the easy believing person or the unbeliever who lives as if there's no standard for morality 
They are caused to see at the cross the infinite cost of Jesus' death. This infinite cost constrains them from continuing on in sin, right? They might sin still in this life. But this fact that they're looking at Jesus, that they are actually by the Holy Spirit's power, knowing and believing in Jesus and seeing what He did and His bloody sacrifice as our propitiation, this fact serves to constrain them. They can no longer continue in sin. They can no longer just carelessly deal with it. In fact, the Spirit and their conscience weighs so heavy on them, they have a strong desire to lay off their sin, to put their sin to death. And even more so, the unbeliever who thinks they're a good person, right? If they have a true view of the bloody sacrifice of Jesus, if the Holy Spirit truly illuminates that to them, they can no longer um, lower the standard. They can no longer lower that bar anymore. Because they finally see where that bar is and they realize that even small sins like cussing every now and then or cheating every now and then or whatever little deceptive thing they think wasn't a big deal, even those small sins are sins for which Jesus Christ died. Even those are sins for which Jesus' blood was shed on the cross. So everyone's solution to their moral guilt before the Holy God is found here in the bloody sacrifice. I hope we can see that very clearly now. And we need to understand what this is. What is it, what, what, we need to understand more about this bloody sacrifice. We need to understand more about God's work through Christ that we would have propitiation. So let's answer some questions now. Now we're going to go through and we're going to answer some key questions to better understand the bloody sacrifice of propitiation. The first one seems obvious. I'm sure some of you are going, what is propitiation? Right? So the first question is, what does this word mean? And it's good that we find out. One notable preacher I listened to this week said, other than the names of God, this is the most important word in the Bible. That's what he said. A simple definition of this is a sacrifice or gift to avert or turn away the wrath of God. Propitiation has to do with God's work of rendering people favorable. To turn one towards another with an eye towards favor and of pleasure. So when Jesus acts as our propitiation, he stands in the way of the wrath of God and he turns God towards us in favor, with an eye towards favor and of pleasure. Our next question is, what is the key book or text in the Bible that we would go to in order to help us understand Propitiation, specifically in the Old Testament. We see it, this word, we see this used throughout the Bible. And what we always want to know with a term like this, with propitiation and understanding the sacrifice of our Lord, is we want to see where it occurs throughout the Word of God. We want to see that as a whole word concept and a whole word principle. So the first place one normally thinks to go in the Old Testament is to the Pentateuch. If it's in the Pentateuch, there's many, many times where propitiation and this blood atoning sacrifice come on display. But then within the Pentateuch, you go to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is focused largely on atonement. And, then, and within the book of Leviticus, you most specifically typically find people narrowing in on chapter 16. Now, Pastor Thomas mentioned this in one of his sermons recently. So in Leviticus chapter 10, which is before um, 16, the sin of Nadab and Abihu is, is recorded there. And this shows what takes place when people in their sinful nature and with their own wisdom try to approach God according to their own way, right? Instead of going his way through propitiation. So what happened to Nadab and Abihu? Well, 
Hopefully we know. But they, they didn't make it. They didn't make it because they tried to approach God in a way that God had not ordained. And this is similar to those people I mentioned earlier in the sermon. Those people who tried to live their moral life before God. Who tried to approach God or try to please God. Or try to live out a life that, that makes sense in whatever highest standard they have. According to their own wisdom. According to their own answers. Or according to a twisted form of what they find in Scripture. Nadab and Abihu represents when we try to go in our own wisdom, in our own way. And so later on in chapter 16, how do I know this connection between Nadab and Abihu in chapter 16? Well, in verse 1 it says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the sons of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. So the intro to chapter 16, this key verse that everyone hones in on when they're trying to understand propitiation. The first verse introduces us to Nadab and Abihu, two people who tried to come on their own wisdom, who tried to come on their own wisdom and their own way towards God. So first we see them. And from there then, Moses goes into explaining the right way to approach God. That right way is through propitiation. Just like I said that the way for all of these different people is the same. That way is only possible through the propitiation and sacrifice of Jesus. In their case, since Jesus had not yet come, Moses guides them through the process of how they were to receive yearly propitiation on the Day of Atonement. So Moses explains, obviously all of this is pointing together. All of this ritual ceremony is pointing together to Jesus, is pointing ahead to the Lamb of God, the propitiation who once and for all turns away the wrath of God from his people. But Moses explains it in his context as the lead up to this, that in a ceremony ritual, they must place their hands on the sacrificial animal each year and that this animal would then be put to death and that placing of the hands represents the sin of the people being placed on that animal. And from there then, that animal's blood was to be taken behind the veil. So God could only be approached behind the veil. That moment of atonement could only take place through propitiation, through an animal having the sin ceremonially placed on them and then them bearing that wrath, bearing that punishment in the place of the people. So again, like I said, this points to the Lamb of God, our propitiation. Like our text says, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. Now another question comes up, which, is very, which naturally comes up from our, from our text when it says, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So the question is, is Jesus the propitiation for the whole world? We talked about this in a sermon a little while ago on limited atonement, but I'll mention it again here. The answer to that question is, in one sense, yes, and in another sense, no. So the text says, yes, he is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. But what, what, what the text is not saying is that Jesus Christ's blood actually averts the wrath of God from every last person on the earth. That could not possibly be what the text is saying, right? Because if it was... Every last person on the earth would be a child of God, would be saved, would be in heaven. There would be no such thing as hell. Universalism would be true. So one commentator gives a very helpful explanation of this. And I quote, John is not moving in the orbit of the modern debate over the extent of the atonement. He proclaims that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. This is not the same as saying he has made propitiation 
for our sins and the sins of the whole world. In the same way, to say that Jesus is the Savior of the world does not mean that he has saved or will save every single individual person in the world. It means, this is a key, that the world, that the whole world needs saving and that he, that is Jesus Christ, is the world's only Savior. And so we could also say, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all people are deceived and, fall, and fallen into a spiritual pit, Therefore, all people need propitiation, right? So in one sense, yes. The answer is yes. In another sense, no. The answer is no. There is no other way to rightly approach God and to conceive of our moral and our ethical standing before the holy God than to go through the death and the bloodshed on the cross. There's no other way. Brings us to the next question as I talk about the death and the bloodshed on the cross, which is what is the deal with all the blood? What is the deal with all the blood? You might have heard this somewhere, talked to someone somewhere. I know I have. People are often put off by Christianity because they ask, what's with all the blood and all the death in Christianity? They find that to be a confusing concept. They don't like that. So it's helpful to remember that though someone um, asking this question, right, they might be an ardent atheist. They might be a total hater of God. They might be very far away from Christianity and very opposed to it. But an interesting thing is that they may actually be intuitively, intuitively in their subconscious there, feeling or sensing something that is not actually that far off from the truth. So when they ask, what's with all the blood? They're finding it kind of disturbing, kind of paining that there's so much blood and death involved in Jesus Christ's, Jesus Christ's atonement, right? And so the fact of the matter is that the sacrifice in the blood of Jesus Christ initially it, ultimately, it is our greatest joy. It is our greatest pleasure. It's the thing that brings us the most joy. We sing about it. We're excited about it. But initially, it is not necessarily intended to initially produce feelings of joy and assurance and peace. Initially, the first thing that the death of a spotless lamb or the death of an innocent person and the splattering of that lamb or that person's blood all over the place is intended to invoke is not a sense of joy and a sense of peace and a sense of assurance. It's intended first and foremost to invoke a sense of remorse, a sense of even disgust at the consequences that are due to sin in the world. That is the first gut reaction you get to death and blood. So were it not for sin, there would be no need for bloodshed. Were it not for sin and the fact that we are fallen and broken, there would be no need for the Son of God to die a gruesome and bloody death. The first thing we feel when we see our Savior sacrificed as our bloody Savior is not immediately the joy and relief that we get from Him being sacrificed. It's first of all, man, why is He dying? Why is He bleeding? He's perfect. He's holy. I'm not saying we should agree with this unbelieving person who asked this question, obviously. But we should, we should be able to find some kind of ground there to be able to explain to them, you need to understand, ultimately, that your own sin, brother, or, or not brother yet, but hopefully one day, brother, you person who's questioning this blood, you need to understand that this question is kind of getting on to something, and that is that Sin deserves death. Sin deserves bloodshed. Your own sin, questioner, deserves death and deserves bloodshed. So next time someone asks you something like this, 
You'd want to lead them first to understand how big of a deal that is, how big of a deal their sin is, and that it causes and, and, and requires death of the Son of God. But then later, hopefully, when they re- repent, when they see the beauty of that death and the beauty of that blood, then hopefully it will bring them joy and assurance and hope before the Holy God. And so in this regard to the blood and the death that's involved, God gives instructions in Leviticus 17 and 11, and he says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So the the unpleasant blood and the lost life of the sacrifice of that lamb, remember I talked about in Leviticus, and of our Savior Jesus is given by God as a means to make atonement for the life, to make atonement for the soul. The wages of sin really is death. The wages of our sin and our disobedience before God really is death. And that's why we need death and we need bloodshed in Christianity. Ultimately, we know that our Savior who died and bled, He rose again. He's seated on high. One day there will be a world devoid of all death, devoid of all bloodshed, because he died, because he shed his blood. And the last question I want to ask is, doesn't this view of propitiation make God the Father out to be mean and angry? If it's true that he needs to be appeased, if he needs to have something come into the place for his wrath to be averted from us, doesn't this make God the Father out to be mean or to be angry? People ask this question they don't, they don't understand this, and I think it's something we can fall into ourselves. The answer is yes, God is angry with the wicked every single day. But it is beautiful to know that in the midst of God the Father's just holiness and His wrath against sin, the fact that He is in fact angry at the wicked every single day, in the midst of that, He not only can be propitiated and has made a way to be propitiated or to have wrath averted, But he also wants to be appeased. He also wants to be uh, he also wants to be propitiated, and he's made a plan in order to be propitiated. Do you see what I mean there? It's not like he's just this detached and mean father. No, he is the one who sent his son. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. So the father does not sit by unwillingly and angrily. While Jesus the Son pleads for the people that he died for. No, that's not the case. No, the whole thing, the whole thing, the whole process of being saved, the whole process of having made propitiation is something that is motivated by God's pure love that includes the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And I've made this error before in my life where I think it's a common error in Reformed theology to sometimes think of the Father in this way to acknowledge the holiness of God, right? To see that in the Bible. To acknowledge that He is a God who's angry with the wicked and who has wrath. But then sometimes we consciously or subconsciously tend to see the Father as being mean, right? Because He needs to be appeased. Because He's wrathful against sin, we feel that the, the Father needs to be appeased while the Son is the one who's truly loving. He's truly kind. He's the one who sets things right. And this sadly causes people to basically, interestingly, fall back into a pagan view of God. If we make this mistake, we think of the Father as not loving, not gracious, and we think of the Son as loving and gracious, we fall back into a pagan and a confusing understanding of God. 
So yes, it is true. Exodus 33, verse 6-7 to says, God will by no means clear the guilty. That is a true fact. And so we need to understand that, yes, the Father is wrathful against sin. Yes, He will by no means clear the guilty. But before that statement in Exodus, where God's nature is defined in one of the fullest and most beautiful ways possible, there's so much about His love and His mercy. It says, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It says all of that about the Father, all of that about our triune God, and only then does it say, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This creates a bit of a, a tension. So Jesus Christ is our propitiation, which means that God can be just. In other words, a God who does not clear the guilty. He can be just while also showing grace and mercy to sinners. Only because of Jesus Christ and only because of His propitiation can God be just and also be the justifier of sinners. Because someone has to step in the place of those sins. There are no sins that will ever go unpunished. And so in Jesus Christ, not only does our spiritual and our moral problem before God find its resolution, but during Jesus Christ's propitiation and His work on the cross for us, the justice and mercy of God are fully displayed and fully vindicated. It says in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord, it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. It pleased God. So in other words, it satisfied God's justice to, to bruise our Savior Jesus Christ. And this in no way is an indicator Obviously, it'd be, it would be ridiculous to think of this as some kind of indicator that our God is this angry, always mean God who needs to be appeased. No, He was pleased to send His own Son as a sacrifice for your sin and my sin. What greater love could be on display than this from Him? And, and justice, right, justice and mercy find their fulfillment in that exact act, in that exact thing. Which is also per se why all these people I've been mentioning with all of their different paths that they try to deal with their moral problem. Isn't it amazing that in one act, God, by putting His Son on the cross as the bloody sacrifice, in that one act, God makes atonement. He makes uh, forgiveness. He makes life possible for all these different people. They all have similar uh, problems, but also they have different divergent answers to those problems. And yet in this whole act of the sacrifice of God, justice and mercy fully displayed. God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit working perfectly together in love to save sinners, people who do not deserve anything. So to conclude, the Scripture teaches us that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So it is this guilty status before God that legally requires God, if He's just, to have a place called hell and that requires anyone who's not in Christ to end up in hell. God's justice is expressed in hell against the unrighteousness of sin, against the unrighteousness of being guilty of the law of God, of falling short of the standard of God like we've been talking about so much. I want to ask you this. We've been answering questions, but now I want to answer your question. Have you ever or do you ever 
contemplate the terror of hell. Do you ever think about this? The reality of eternal justice, just justice from God, eternal wrath from God. No smile, zero smile from God. No common grace from God. Without any mercy from God. That's what hell is. Now, if you don't ever think about hell, if you don't ever contemplate it and you don't ever ponder it, you might think, I'm a Christian. I'm in Christ. I don't have to think about hell. What, what encouragement is there for me to be found in hell? Well, I just want to ask you this. Do you think the Scriptures illustrate this for us in such vivid terms and mentions it for us so often that we should spend no time contemplating it? Of course not. Nothing in Scripture is, nothing in scripture is given for no reason. You shouldn't just get saved and then ignore certain passages about hell. No, when you read God's Word, you're inevitably going to encounter the texts that have to do with the terror of hell. Quite often you're going to come across them. And so it is undoubtedly God's intention that we should contemplate such things. We must. We have to. We have no choice. If we're going to be faithful to the Word and we're faithfully going to live the Christian life in our mind and our heart, doing it the way God calls us to do it, then we need to have a place for contemplating hell, even as Christians now. The reason is this. When you are graciously allowed to see your own sin and guilt, right? when you are graciously allowed to have an accurate assessment of who you are as a sinner, when you see the flames that you deserve, when you see that, the, that hell in the Bible is a place of weeping, when you see that it is a place of gnashing of teeth, when it's a place of pain, when you see an eternity, the possibility of an eternity, right? The sermon this morning talked about it. We're to press on. There's a possibility of an eternity in hell for people who do not press on, for people who leave the faith, for people who turn aside. Gnashing of teeth, weeping. When you see all of that, when you see pain, when you see an eternity without God's smiling face, my question to you is, who do you look to? Who do you look to in that moment? Because in that moment, when you look to Jesus Christ, the answer is you have to look to Jesus Christ. In that moment, you will feel more joy as a current Christian, someone who's already saved, than you will probably any other time in your life. When you see what you deserve, when you see what the cost of sin is, but then you look to your Savior Jesus and you know the doctrine of propitiation, that there is a substitute, that there is a lamb whose blood was shed, whose death occurred so that sinners could come to God, that is when you will feel the most joy. That's when you will feel the most lightness as a Christian, probably ever, is when you can acknowledge and accept and understand that. You need somebody to stand in the gap for you. You need someone to quench the flames of hell for you. You need someone to be beaten for you. You actually need someone to be forsaken for you. So the question is, who turns God's wrath away? Who propitiates for you? You have to look to Him. And so we need to look to the bloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ this evening. We need to look to our propitiation, to the God-man who bore the wrath that you deserve, that I deserve. The only one who can quench the flames of hell. The only one who can serve 
there on the cross and that therefore can give you a clear understanding of propitiation. One that's not just disgust and shame and remorse because of death and blood, but one that says you can have life, brother. You can have life, sister. Come to me and you will find rest for your soul. Come to me and you can find your sin, your grievous and ugly sin removed from you. That is only possible through the propitiation of Jesus Christ. That is only possible for us if we have a clear view and a good understanding of propitiation. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Let us declare this message. It will be hated. It will be despised. Sometimes we get away from believing it ourselves. We need to be declaring this message because this message, this radical message that there's a place like hell, that there's a just God who has just wrath against sin, this radical message is the source of life, is the source of hope when you look to Jesus Christ, when you look to our propitiation. Let's pray. Dear Father, God, I pray that no matter what paths of error we might be walking on at times, or no matter how we might stray or wander away, I pray that we would be drawn back to your word, drawn back to your truth, drawn back to seeing the cross of Jesus Christ, the propitiation that you've made on the cross. I pray that we would love this truth, be changed by this truth, that this would be at the core of our meditation, at the core of our heart. Pray that we'd clearly be able to see how loving you are, God, in every respect, how just you are, yet how gracious you are in pouring out your wrath on your Son for our sake. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.